Hi, welcome to Shelf Esteem, the podcast where I talk with interesting people about the books they find interesting. I'm Trudy Morgan Cole, and those of you who know my reading habits know that I read mostly fiction, but when I do read nonfiction, it often tends to stray into the area of the spiritual, I guess you might say, because that's where my interests lie. So I decided to invite two people uh, who do a lot of that kind of reading to come and talk about books for the spiritual journey, whether they're about theology or religion or maybe in a less direct way about the life of faith uh, from a lot of different perspectives. So I'm going to uh, share with you my conversation with Rob Cook and David Newman and I ask them to start off by introducing themselves. Uh, Rob Cook, I'm the uh, I'm a priest at St. Mark's Anglican Church here in St. John's and I also teach at Queens College Faculty of Theology. Okay, and David? I'm currently working on a doctorate at Vicadia. Uh, before that, I was the chaplain at the university um, um, where I met this gentleman who I knew before, but it's the Pentecostal faith. Uh-huh. And I've held different positions, uh, lead pastor, uh, led the uh, mission downtown St. John's. Oh, okay. A variety of different things. Mm-hmm. So you're coming from a Pentecostal background, That's correct. and you're an Anglican priest, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am a Seventh Day Adventist lay person who is probably too liberal for my own church, but very deeply <laughs> connected to it. Uh, and uh, we're all avid readers, of course. As I wish this was video instead of audio, so everyone could see the pile of books that uh, <laughs> that that were brought into the studio for this conversation. Um, so let me jump in by asking you both: Is there any book? that I guess maybe that you have read recently or something that stands out as having a, a big impact? I don't know if it's one particular book, but one particular author. Uh-huh. John Caputo. Okay. I don't know if you guys are familiar with I'm him. I'm not. He is a uh, American scholar, although he, he does write some things that are not as scholarly. Uh, he was a Roman Catholic... Um, he was in a Roman Catholic order, left the order to study philosophy. Mm-hmm. And in the last couple of years, he says he, he has come out as a theologian. Okay. And so he's writing, I think, the best theology out there right now is John Caputo. Uh-huh. And as an example, I would offer this little book called On Religion, where he talks, gives a good philosophy of religion. Uh-huh. But his... Uh, Theology really shows in this book, too. It's got another really good little book. It's called Truth. Uh, it's part of a series on uh, contemporary philosophy. Uh-huh. Done in kind of uh, palatable, easily readable little chunks. And it's, it's a book called Truth, which okay. is fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. For anybody who's interested in reading about religion, but not really coming from a religious tradition. Okay. Just be interested. Yeah. Uh, he's fantastic. And if you're someone who is a part of a church, you should read What Would Jesus Deconstruct? Okay. By John Caputo. All right. It's absolutely amazing where he takes some very heavy postmodern philosophy and then brings it into the church and in conversation Uh with Jesus. It's amazing. Wow. So John Caputo, anything by John Caputo. Okay. And what about you, David? On the Caputo thing, yeah. My thesis is largely on postmodernity, and he, of course, is uh, writing a host of things on that issue. Right? Mm-hmm. So he's cost me some money recently as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm going to go to the fiction side of it. Okay, great. Yeah. And uh, Margaret Atwood. Okay. Uh, the Oryx and Craig trilogy, the uh-huh. Mad Adam. Yes. Now, I've had people on this podcast recommend that before as a, as a series. Uh, but interesting that you'd bring that up, talking like from the spiritual perspective. Why, why that, that trilogy particularly? Well, I think Atwood definitely has lots of spiritual you know, themes running through her For sure. writings. Yeah. As noted even recently with the TV series. Yeah. The Handmaiden's Tale. She likes to play with dystopia, which uh-huh. I enjoy a lot of. Um, and uh, in the Mad Adam trilogy, it's a dystopia. It's a future distro- dystopia, uh-huh. kind of post-apocalypse uh, of life, kind of uh, being created again. Therefore, mm-hmm. the Mad Adam scenario. Right. A right. group of people gathering around, and there are these rooftop gardens, and there's these uh, the challenges that are faced and. Um, just a lot of really good characterization. Uh, it flips back in the trilogy, back and forth, so that's interesting as well. Uh-huh. So from the spirituality perspective, uh, I guess uh, as a genre, I mean, you can study spirituality uh, non-fictionally. Uh, you can study it theologically, specifically. You can study it pietistically. But it's always interesting when it comes through in fiction. Uh-huh. And uh, it's a year in the vibe of the, the writer. Uh, the background of it, and when you get someone like Atwood that is so mm-hmm. coy in the way they write, but also very interested uh, in present-day uh, power structures mm-hmm. and how she kind of imagines them to be into the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really, really cool. And that's placed then down upon uh, kind of like the uh, the Genesis uh, creation as well as uh, the, the flood epics. Uh-huh. Uh, you get some really nice play back and forth. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. That's actually an Atwood I, I have not read. I've read a lot of her books. I've not read that series. I have personal issues with dystopias. I find them really hard <laughs> to read. I think I, I get, I, I believe it too much when I'm reading yeah. really realistic dystopias. Mm-hmm. What about books that, um, that maybe had a big impact on you, you know, sort of on the, the path that you ended up taking or the person you ended up becoming, maybe when you were younger or whatever? What are, what are some of the books that... Uh, that stand out for you? Uh, for me, no <laughs> doubt, it would be C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity. Uh, this is probably the first serious book of theology that I read. Mm, it was for me as well, I'm sure it was yeah, for and I was many, many people. Probably maybe grade 12, maybe uh-huh. like right after grade 12 that I read this and it was like, wow, mm-hmm. you can think and, and be, be a, a Christian, Christian at the same time. <laughs> I had that exact reaction reading the book at about 16 or yeah. 17 and, 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 you know, having come up from this tradition where, yes, we should be intelligent about our faith, but also maybe not ask too many questions because yeah. they might get, they might take you into a dangerous area. Uh, yeah, I had that exact same reaction. Yeah. You can be intelligent I, and be I was Christian. specifically told in church growing up, don't ask questions. Oh, Stop. Yeah. <laughs> Stop asking questions. Mm-hmm. And when I read this book, it was... It was profound for me. And I've read it multiple times. It's mm-hmm. one of the few theology books that I've gone back to. Does it to. age well, do you find? Uh, <laughs> I'm in a different place uh-huh. from C.S. Lewis now. C.S. Lewis, I think, was a great thinker for his time, but he yes. was, like anybody, shaped by his time. He was a man of his time, yeah. Yes. I mean, and I find, obviously, as a woman reader, his sexism doesn't yes. wear well for me yes. now. Yes, I find the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he's a product of... He's a rational person. Yes, yeah. And so he tries to present a very rational faith, which mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't know if, like you said, I don't know that it ages well. Mm. But as, you know, an articulation of faith, it's one of the 
the best. Yes, yeah, I agree. Finally, what saves him a little bit uh, is his narrativization, uh, because he's not strictly a theologian. Yes, yes, he's from, a storyteller and a novelist, yeah. yeah. So even like in mere Christianity, like yourself, is a, the backdrop of the Battle of Britain and the yes, Luftwaffe yeah. and, mm -hmm. yeah. and all his analogies. So I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's still profound, but like you said, couched in definitely a modernistic, yeah. rationalistic yeah. idea. Yeah. I find I mean, in many ways like screw tape letters has probably yeah. aged better for me than Definitely. than mere Christianity yes, because of this, yeah. Yes, yeah. and the Chronicles of Narnia. Of course, which for yeah. Me, like I, for me, it was a toss up between <laughs> mere, uh, mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia because yeah. both were so heavily influential mm -hmm. in me. And yeah. What about you? Do you have any books that were influential on you at a at an early stage? Well, like yourselves, it's funny how the Anglican uh, managed to get into in his but also in yours and mine uh -huh. but everybody he's kind of like Einstein he gets claimed by everybody yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh, Mere Christianity I love the great divorce and my mm. my wife and I were raised on uh, the Chronicles of Narnia yes yeah um, so if I move away from that uh, a couple of books uh, again uh, when you when I saw that note there that you mm. had there about something when I was younger um, I would have liked to said something you know really profound <laughs> Um, but I ended up with <laughs> going back, uh, you know, kind of like to mid-teens. Uh -huh. One of the books uh, was written by a Roman Catholic priest, uh, Ritter, who was part of the Covenant House uh, uh, missions uh -huh. in New York and I think different places. They have one mm -hmm. in Toronto. Yes, yes. And so he wrote a book sometimes, God as a Kid's Face. Okay. Mm -hmm. Simplistically wrote, but talks about it. And I'm not, I'm going to completely butcher the Latin, but I remember even so much as it, because I remember as a child memorizing it, Dum Tempus Abimus Operum Bonum. And the, hopefully nobody speaks Latin. <laughs> this, but. I don't think a lot of people who speak Latin <laughs> but, listen to my podcast. I think we're good. I think the gist was, let us do good while there still is time. Oh, okay. And, and I remember memorizing that as just a kid, not having much understanding uh -huh. of how Latin breaks down. But that was really something in terms of, uh, again, coming from a Pentecostal, which is kind of Protestant mm -hmm. in, uh, in our world, though theologically it gets mixed up a bit. Uh, but definitely conservative, mm -hmm. and not having much connections back in my time with Anglican or Roman Catholic folk, uh, and then reading with what this gentleman mm, did, yeah. which was, was quite interesting for me in thought process. The other one on a different angle would be, uh, I was also very much influenced by Keith Green as a kid. Oh, yes, yeah. Like, again, kind of stereotypical in terms of I loved you too, and <laughs> Keith uh -huh. Green, variety of things. But uh, Keith Green's biography written by his, uh, uh, by his wife, Melody. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading that and then the story of how he, uh, I came from a musical family. Mm -hmm. My family was heavily involved in, in the music industry. And uh, reading about how he had a CBS contract and giving it up. I remember that meant a lot to me as a teenager oh, as I was yeah. listening to my tunes. Yeah. And then how he opened, they bought a house and they were opening up to everybody. And, and uh -huh. then, of course, the plane crash and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So those two almost in kind of, I guess, a biographical kind of a story type level of humanity, along with uh, Lewis. What's the what's the film about Keith Green? Not about him. It's not a documentary. It's a it's a concert film of Keith Green. But it, it was like really widely released. And I remember, I'm older than you guys, so I'm <laughs> remembering an earlier era, I think. But it was it was shown here at um, Holy Heart on um, like big screen. Uh, and I went with a bunch of friends, and I probably would have been like 
What year did Keith Green die? Was it 82? No, I think so. Yeah, which was the year I graduated from high school. Um, And it was around that time or a year or two later that this film was out of him in concert and a bunch of us went to see it and, you know, he was, you know, preaching as well as singing. And, you know, I just remember leaving there like so inspired and so like, yes, I want to do something that's going to save the world. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. Uh, Better than the Left Behind series. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the Left Behind series because I'm, I was thinking while Dave was just talking about you know formative books mm-hmm. when I was younger. Probably a formative book for me in the negative mm-hmm. would be a book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth. Because <laughs> I, I grew up in a very conservative tradition as well, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember the fear yes. that that instilled yeah. in me yeah. and, and my friends at the time. Yeah, and there is within my tradition with that in Adventism too. There is a whole genre of end of the world yeah, novels as well, and you know the believers too. being persecuted, and and you know yeah. I, I think a lot of us had that yeah. fear of the end times. Maybe that's why you have issues with dystopian. It, people have suggested that to me, <laughs> but at, it it doesn't connect as clearly in my mind as you might think. But uh, it's it's more to me the dystopias that scare me more are the purely human-caused dystopias like environmental devastation. Mm-hmm. I find it very hard to think about, you know, post-climate change apocalypse. Anyway, not to, not to hog another <laughs> podcast talking about my issues with dystopia, because I've done this before. Um, what are some other books that have had a big impact on you at, at different points over the years, or maybe have been important in, in turning points or changes in your thinking? Uh, for me, I think I would point again to another author, uh-huh. Uh, Pete Rollins. Okay. Uh, the book I have in my hand is The Idolatry of God, but uh, most of his books have been very good in helping me transition to a more, what would I call it? Post anything? <laughs> <laughs> like helping me move beyond a kind of denominationally based, even a particular theology based uh, view of, of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he, he's very good. He's a philosopher, but he's also a theologian, probably mm-hmm. operating inside of any kind of tradition. Right. But he gets me thinking about God in a different kind of way, mm. which is, and I like that in authors, that get me thinking yeah. about God in a different kind of way. And so I found him very, very helpful over the last few years. Yeah. I think I read one book of his. It wasn't that one. I can't remember what it was, but it, it was definitely, a, I, I, some, he's someone I'd heard a lot yeah. about and uh, a lot of responses. He's got a great book of modern day parables. It's called The uh, Orthodox Heretic. Oh, okay. Great title. Yeah. So he gives the, uh, the parable and then a kind of little short uh, mm-hmm. description of the parable. And I've used a fair number of those parables in my own preaching. Yeah. Because I really feel people... People want to talk about God, but not in the kind of systematic theology kind of way, but more right. narrative way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being able to identify with their own personal experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, about God, and I think story really yeah, gets story that. Yeah, story does, for sure, right. yeah. Um, theologically, uh, maybe I'll mention three books. The first one that I came across when I was at one of the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a grad degree in religious studies, mm-hmm. and uh, we did a, the idea of the holy by Rudolf Otto. Okay. okay, it's probably one of my favorite books. I've gone back to it many times. Uh, Dr. Hans Rollman had it as part of my required reading, 
And uh, basically, he, he comes from a Christian background, but he did a diverse study of uh, various religious and spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, not quite William James variation, but looking at actual organized religions. Okay. And looking specifically at moments of the ecstatic, uh, moments of almost like coming into uh, the presence of God, almost in a fearful uh -huh. uh, sense. Uh, called the Mysterium Tremendum, uh, which was his phraseology for it. And uh, again, coming from a Pentecostal background, where the ecstatic plays a part of it, mm -hmm. and on the Seventh-day Adventists, and there was a prophetess back there. Yes, origins, yeah, right? pro pro prophecy and visions, that's, yeah. That's right. Uh, most traditions have, uh, have it of some sort. Mm -hmm. um, but fascinating how he, he broke it all down. Uh, it was interesting, again, coming though from a faith perspective, but it was from, from a scholarly perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, his identification of it was treated kind of scholarly, and he, just the naming of it. And so it wasn't removing the mystery, uh, but it was actually giving it some credence of how it was being experienced. Mm. And uh, uh, that book there, I've gone to many times and recommended it quite often. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of folk uh, who aren't interested in theology, Jürgen Moulton is a, a favorite of mine. He's mm -hmm. also cost me too much money. <laughs> yeah, um, me too. I've got a, a bookshelf belonging to him. Um, and again, his experiences coming out of the Holocaust, World War II, uh, um. theology of hope, uh, attempting to come to, to grips, still believing in God, still believing that humanity has a, a future. Mm -hmm. uh, his eschatology idea of the future, not a dystopia, uh, his was actually somehow uh, the salvation. Uh, it wasn't a pantheistic salvation of the earth, uh, but it was the earth coming into its full consummation with humanity, with all of life being almost redeemed. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's like a full understanding, which he's influenced many, many people. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned uh, the study that I'm doing postmodernity is looking at the Holy Spirit from a postmodern perspective. Mm -hmm. And so he has four or five books that reflect that way, but the, um, uh, the source of life, um, really nice. It's, it's a little bit biographical, but it's also um, basically works as a pneumatology, the study of the spirit, and creates that around that. And so it's mm -hmm. a marvelous book that I read that early on, was that end, Theology of Hope. The other book that I wanted to mention was Beyond the Impasse. Uh, it's this chap writes, uh, Amos Young. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to discover some Pentecostal uh, the theology that's being written now, uh, uh, it's not certainly not uh, sectarian Pentecostalism. Mm -hmm. It's it's a he looks at pneumatology and the spread, and he's pushing at some of the boundaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, my the subtitle of it is uh, Toward Pneumatological Theology of Religions. Mm -hmm. And so the gist of it, and I like this because it was kind of where my thoughts were, made me feel less of a heretic, maybe an orthodox heretic, <laughs> um, was that when we approach people, uh, when Christians, especially conservative Christians, uh, approach people of other religions, uh, inevitably you go through, uh, your, your first doorway is a Christology or soteriology. Who is Christ and how are people come to know God explicitly through Christ? Mm -hmm. And that pinches you in and often closes a dialogue right mm -hmm. away. Well, his point of view, and it's, I've discovered others have had it before, is, well, if you think of the Holy Spirit as being present throughout all creation, mm -hmm. uh, never, not, not on the day of Pentecost was it ever given over the, uh, the right or the, the joy of engaging humanity or the planet. The Spirit may work in humanity as the church, the ecclesia, mm -hmm. But, as in, but never did it say we stopped engaging anyone else. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you approach it from that perspective, well, what is God, what is the Holy Spirit engaging in Buddhism and Hinduism and atheism mm. and Walmart, welcome to <laughs> greeterism. Uh-huh. <laughs> wherever there's a human being, wherever there's creation, uh, one should probably suspect that God is present and engaging people. And if there still is a mission for the church per se, and I still come from that tradition, mm-hmm. uh, we walk into a scenario whereby it's more of an illumination of what probably God is already doing. And so it's a so it's a pneumatological approach, the spirit approach as opposed to a crystallological approach. Okay. So that kind of mm-hmm. jolted me around a bit. I just wanted to you mentioned Jurgen Moltmann, who's a favorite of mine as well. In one of his books that was really, really formative for me is The Crucified God. And I always, you know, growing up younger and even when I became an adult, really struggled with this idea of Jesus dying for our sins as some kind of sacrifice to an angry God. Mm-hmm. And I felt, when I read Moltmann, it really, it, it helped me see Jesus and the crucifixion in a different light, that it's not so much about sacrifice, but it's God in solidarity mm. with human suffering. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's not some kind of blood sacrifice, but, but it's mm. God in the flesh identifying with human yeah. suffering and, and then somehow making that sacred that, you know, that it's not something we need to run away from or be saved from or, you know, get a get out of hell free card but it's part of the human condition this um, that God identifies with so much I find that really powerful and mm-hmm. it, it's changed my understanding of Good Friday of, mm-hmm. of Easter and, and even coming from an Anglican tradition what we do in the Eucharist yeah right that it's not a sacrifice it's a it's a meal of of solidarity that we, we share together. It's interesting too because that idea of the blood sacrifice is something that for so many people who either have left Christianity or have never been Christian is a huge turnoff in Christianity, you know, is, is a, um, something people react very negatively to and I don't think in many cases people are even aware that there are a lot of different nuanced ways that Christians view that and you know, yes. not everybody sees it that way. And I can hear my conservative friends yelling <laughs> at their computers about, you know, Scripture. Scripture does yes, refer yeah. to these things, and yeah. I'm denying that. But it refers to it in, a, in many other different ways as well. Even just yeah. take someone like St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And, and one uh, sentence he can talk about sacrifice, and another sentence he can talk about, you know, use uh, imagery from the slave markets, a bit redeeming economic terms. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he has a lot of different images different, for what the cross means. I, yeah, because I think for Paul, he's just experienced something. He's had this dramatic experience, and he's trying to put language to it. And he struggles. Yes. So he uses these yeah. different things, mm-hmm. and so Moltmann kind of took out one of those strands for mm-hmm. me. Yeah, and helped me understand it in a different kind of way. Yeah, right. I'll. Uh, I'll be one of your screaming friends if you wish. <laughs> Please, any any amount of screaming would be great. <laughs> now I'm, a, I oscillate, uh, you know, between a variety of things there, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm happy with that because I I find more and more the uh, a string a single stream of thought on anything tends to be just that. So, yeah. And so you mentioned nuances. Uh, I also remember that and. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, that was terribly enlightening. Uh, the whole idea of 
maybe uh, you know the focus upon sacrifice, love, suffering, and then resurrection. Oftentimes, uh, in our hymnals from years ago, uh, the resurrection hymns would only get sung at Easter. And, yes, yeah. Uh, though, and a lot of times, even the way the hymns were organized, they're done uh, thematically. You would mm -hmm. talk the life of Christ, death yeah. of Christ, resurrection. That's their narrative, and that they work well that way. So I'm, I'm definitely there. I think there probably definitely need to be a correction, mm -hmm. uh, an encouragement. Um, I heard one person say that, and this is really not what you said, but if Christ is the ultimate example, mm -hmm. that's an amazing thing to say. But if he is also uh, the only means to accessing God through his sacrifice, then though you have complimented him incredibly, uh, this is a diminishment of, you know, difficult to even get your mind around. Mm -hmm. um, so to question, and I know you didn't say that, but to question whether or not one wants to extricate that from one's belief system, Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, that would be a big, big step. There's the theological words from the past, propitiation, and mm -hmm. they mess up. Uh, for Jesus, uh, I guess, you know, for the, for the execution to occur on Passover, uh, mm -hmm. for the elements of it to be retread, not just by Paul, as he did with other things, but Hebrews, and, uh, and then the elements of the Old Testament. Uh, for me, the idea of, if I, if I go into that, imagery of the blood sacrifice, and I think about the tabernacle and the temple and all those things, um, I believe the biggest theological word I could come up with would be yuck. <laughs> right? and so I, I get that and I understand that. Um, I find it difficult, I, I guess for me, I would, I would not want to rid myself of that because mm -hmm. of its uh, primary importance within in scripture and in tradition. But I'm very thankful that it's not, you know, Good Friday and tomb not mm -hmm. just from a spiritual, methodological thing, but the light of that, the, the whole idea. He did seem to care an awful lot about the suffering. There was an awful lot said about the, you know, the hardship of folk that went through. Mm -hmm. And the post-resurrection, uh, uh, the writers often spoke of that connection that was able to be made. Mm -hmm. So, and maybe Moltmann's good again like that, from the Holocaust to the hope that he creates, right? He, well, I mean, I he's think able his, to bridge that. his experience of... Yeah. You know, being involved in World War II and what everybody witnessed with the Holocaust. A lot of the questions about who is God, what is God like, really shaped, especially the, the crucified God. How do you make sense of mm -hmm. human suffering? It's a crucible. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, which comes from the word grass. So. <laughs> Just trying to work with it. Get a little etymology in there. <laughs> what else? Uh, one question I, I sent you guys beforehand that I always like to ask people, whatever the focus is, is there a book that you recommend to other people or that you wish, you know, wish everybody could read this book? Or maybe not just one, or one author. Yeah. The caveat, I'll let you think about this one, because you're good enough to me. Uh, the caveat, you mentioned, I think, in your note, you even said if you're going through, when you're going through a difficult time. Yes, for sure. Okay, it? Yeah. that was more difficult for me. If yeah. you didn't have that caveat, I would have just, I would have been really good. Well, you can you can leave that out. You can look at the question either <laughs> well, way. But. Well, what I'll do with, you made me think about it. The oh, book good. that I end up came up with that is a, actually a book that he recommended to me. Uh -huh. <laughs> And it's called Learning to Walk in the Dark. I don't know if you've got Okay, no, I don't. Oh, but it's Barbara okay. Brown Taylor, who okay. I do know. Yes, yeah. I'm not sure if I've read that one or not, but I've read several of hers. Yeah, that was uh, fabulous. Yeah. It was, uh, again, uh, autobiographic mm -hmm. and teaching as well with it. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
were friends and through conversations and things recommended that to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would recommend that book to anybody that's attempting to, kind of an ecclesiastic, ecclesiastic sort of way, uh, working their way through through some heavy things. Yes, yeah. Not, and what I like about not simple answers, mm-hmm. uh, but more recognition of what is and walking through you know, yes. the journey with what is. Yeah. So, you know, props yeah. to I found her that. a great writer for that, that too, mm-hmm. in general. What I would recommend for someone to enjoy, uh-huh. and what I end up buying for people, uh, uh, the chrysalids uh, by Wyndham Deer. Yes, I'm familiar with it. Okay, another yeah. dystopia. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I think you're familiar with that? That's no. an amazing book, which British writer, eventually with America, but it's actually uh, placed in post-apocalyptic Labrador. Oh. Mm-hmm. So very, very interesting. What's really kind of, it's got, it talks about a holiness group that arises and they follow all these strict rules, mm-hmm. both biblical and, and extra-biblical, mm-hmm. and dealing with people that are developing through mutation, a variety of different limbs and things. Uh-huh. And, and how they are being cast away and cast mm-hmm. out. It ends up being an incredible uh, kind of parable parallel uh-huh. within the dystopic thing. Uh, and the other one that uh, I often I buy for people, uh, Leo Tolstoy's is, is the thinnest one, is Haji Murat, uh-huh. uh, which he, I think he thought was his favorite book. Uh, um, but uh, it was a, Tolstoy spent time uh, when he was young uh, with the Russian military in the Crimean. Mm-hmm. And so this is that same area that kind of boiled over there uh, with Grozny, uh, yes, Pakistan, yeah. that, old, that old area. Yeah. And uh, so he saw, so what was interesting is he's dealing with coming from an Orthodox perspective, uh, this Islamic gentleman going into the communities and the fights that were going back and forth. Lots of religious nuances in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really interesting, the story of people and how they're trying to figure each other out. Mm-hmm. So, What's the title of that one again? Uh, Haji Murat. Okay. That, sure, that's a Tolstoy I'm not familiar with. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm destroying it. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I always post a blog that has the ti- names and titles of all the books we discuss. So that's if anybody the, misses something or it gets mispronounced, then we have a second shot. That's pronounced in the original Notre Dame Bay. <laughs> that's great. Uh, what about you, Rob? What's a book that you recommend to people or a writer? Uh, I, I recommend a couple. One is a, a fiction book. And I just read it mm-hmm. uh, over the summer. It's uh, by Douglas Copeland, Life After God. Okay. And um, I would recommend it to people who might, like if you're interested in things spiritual, mm-hmm. maybe even in theology, mm-hmm. but not organized religion. Right. Uh, although most, most of my experience of religion is never very organized. <laughs> but, um, but Copeland, um, and this book's from like 1994, so it's been around for a dog's age. Mm-hmm. I just picked it up. And he's talking about, you know, those questions of meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, well, he's the author of Generation X. Right, yeah, you know, which is that. probably what he's most famous yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. But I think when, as I was reading it, because we, you, I, I hear a lot of talk about millennials now. Yes, yeah. I'm not even sure what a millennial is, although <laughs> I think I have two living at home. Yes. Um, but I think a lot of the, the seeking, the spiritual questing that I see in that generation, mm-hmm. he's still giving articulation to. Yes, yeah. Uh, and so I just found it's a great, you know, if you're a, if you're a seeker, but you're not really sure what you're seeking for, mm. maybe Copeland is a good guy to get you started along the path. Okay. Then another good person to pick up when you get a bit further down the path is Richard Rohr. Oh, yes, yeah. Richard yeah. Rohr is amazing. Mm-hmm. And he's helped me in the last 
couple of years because I'm a thinker, a mm -hmm. uh, very rational person. Right. And but he comes from the more spiritual tradition. Yes. Franciscan yeah. uh, monk, and he's written way too many books for me to talk about. <laughs> yes. Two in particular I would recommend is is The Naked Now, uh -huh. which I don't have with me because I loaned it to somebody. <laughs> and then there's uh, The Divine Dance. Okay. The Trinity and Your Transformation. Hmm. Uh, one of the great things about Richard Rohr, he knows the Christian tradition, mm -hmm. uh, in particular the Franciscan tradition, but he also borrows very easily from the Buddhist tradition, right. Hindu, and different parts of, of the Christian tradition as well. Right. He he will become your spiritual guru <laughs> if you start reading him. And he he's good friends with Oprah and Deepak <laughs> and Chopra. That's a recommendation, yeah. <laughs> but he I, I just find he if you're going through again a a, a questing time, mm. you're trying to make sense of life. Yeah. Um, spirituality. If you're in a religious tradition, if you're not in a religious tradition, mm. Richard Rohr is a perfect guide. Mm. The one of his I read, uh, I think, was Falling Upward. Yes. Uh, which is about getting older, really, yes. and about, yeah. about spirituality in different phases of, of your life, which I think is something that a lot of us can relate to, our, our spirituality or our view of faith changing yeah. as we get older. He, he's got a great book on male spirituality. Oh, okay. A couple, actually, but one in particular. can't remember the title of it now, but... <laughs> Uh, because spirituality, and my experience in the church, mm -hmm. is that men kind of don't f don't feel that the church speaks to their spirituality. Mm. That can be more female. Interesting, given um, that the official voice of the I, church is almost always it's, male. It's, it's yeah. odd. It's odd, but. If I look at, you know, in my own particular context of St. Mark's, the people who are involved, mm. heavily involved in the church, they're mm. more often than not women. Yeah, yeah. What is it that keeps men from being as involved? Mm. And uh, Richard Rohr does some really good things around male spirituality and it's worth reading. I would that's, recommend it to people. That's interesting. Because you had, you, on the gender thing, briefly, you had mentioned before we started recording that you uh, you looked at your list of books that you looked to bring in and seen how overwhelmingly white and male it, it was. Yes. You know, and I think we all do read out of our own perspectives and prejudices. I know, like, I know for me, you know, we talk about Roar as your spiritual guru. Like, my spiritual guru is Anne Lamott. There's, mm -hmm. she is, she's the person who has, whose writing has just led led me on a path out of a lot of confusion because at a certain point in midlife I was like you know can I be this feminist liberal sometimes quite angsty person that I'm becoming in midlife and still be a Christian and a person of faith and someone it was exactly at that point that someone recommended uh, Anne Lamott's Traveling Mercies to me and that was an absolutely life-changing book and you know her and a bunch of other I guess liberal feminist author Sarah Miles, Nadja Boltz Weber, mm. uh, now Rachel Held Evans, uh, and of course Anne Lamott is still at it. Um, you know, for me, they have been real beacons. Um, and then I look at my sort of spiritual guru bookshelf and realize how overwhelmingly feminine it is. So mm -hmm. it's interesting how, you know, we're shaped Another by Another name I would add to your list is Diana Butler Bass. Yes, Diana. yeah. She's always being recommended to me. I'm trying to remember if I have actually read a book of hers or if I've, she's, I think she's just on my list. Yeah, her but her earlier she is book was good. Church for the Rest of Us. Yes. Uh, the one that I've got here with me is Christianity After Religion. Yes, it's yeah. I think 
that's one of the ones the that subtitles the end of church and the birth of a new spiritual awakening uh-huh. so i mean if richard Rohr won't be your guru <laughs> diana maybe butler. diana butler bass will her be. last book grounded uh-huh. is all about a spirituality that is grounded here in in present time in the earth mm. so she talks about water and soil and air and how that plays a part of our spirituality yeah if you're an outdoorsy person at all like i'm a little hiking uh-huh. she is a great companion for that kind that's of great that's another change i've gone through in midlife is that i am a much more outdoorsy person than i used to be when younger and i'm interested mm-hmm. in that yeah. she doesn't realize it but um, this is not a award she'll get but she's in my feces oh ah. and so she has no idea how incredible she is now but uh and two people will read my thesis. <laughs> one of them you're, is in the room. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you're doing well. That's one person yeah. more than usually reads a thesis. And the other person's going to lie. You mentioned feminism. Yes. Um, that's. The, um, I thought I had the book here, and I didn't. Um, a course that I did at Mun again back at the master's level was with Kim Parker, and it was a feminist interpretation of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And I considered it of all the courses as I've done my favorite and all the constellations studies uh-huh. and things. And one of the biggest reasons was because I couldn't believe I read the Bible so often and didn't see certain things. Hmm. I listened to your listing there. Um, I've since become fans of these people and uh-huh. I'm known as the feminist in my <laughs> denomination. But uh, Tribble, yeah. Axum, uh, yeah. Fragmented Women, mm-hmm. yes. um, Mickey Ball, um, these folk... Uh, Vierens is another one. Okay, that's right. Yeah. I'm, that's another section I've gotten out of mine. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I'm interested in how post-modernity breaks some of the schools of post-modern feminism. Uh-huh. As now, the literary criticism was there and the kind of the, the power agency criticism was there. But now with post-modernity, it's getting read now almost narratively, but kind of looking for undercurrents and mm-hmm. you know, it's all about subterfuge right and mm-hmm. all about uh, sleight of hand and what's where culture is moving and things um that uh, opened my eyes in ways that really kind of bothered me mm-hmm. so as someone who says you're, you're a feminist uh i think an awful lot of people who come from a non-feminist background maybe not just christianity but certainly christians mm-hmm. um they would be surprised by what they have read without seeing what's there. Sometimes. Right. Yeah. Um, I did another course uh, by Chapman and Webb, uh, my, maybe my second favorite one. I was looking hard uh, passages in the Old Testament. Mm. One of his books, I can't remember the name, but I could have brought a line, but it was, I think it was uh, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. Oh, wow. Deliberately, right? <laughs> yeah. And he said uh, one time he was on the airplane going through it, and he noticed the people all kind of looking at him. <laughs> 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 But uh, I think that's one of the things that um, where kind of religion and the Christian church in the West no longer has its uh, place of, uh, you know, power. Mm-hmm. Um, now we, we're a little, maybe it's a little more humbling. Of maybe we're forced to look at things a tad differently. Mm. Um, but it's, you, you're able to see things through lenses, which may be the rose-colored stained glass that you looked through before, mm-hmm. uh, just because you're human didn't allow you to see. Mm-hmm. And uh, that doesn't change whether or not the foundational ideas are true. That's a question that's worth having. Mm-hmm. But when you see things through a different prism, yeah, uh, you can understand maybe why some folk 
uh, we're finding some things more difficult than mm -hmm. others. Uh, and maybe uh, questioning some of those a priori assumptions you had about was this exactly this way you mentioned about you know the blood sacrifice and things but you're talking about you know the Canaan and what occurred there about how yes. women were treated and all these sorts of things mm -hmm. and reflections and how scripture relates to that and so when you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning uh, and you read uh, what I'm doing my paper on now Psalm 137 by the, by the rivers of Babylon oh yes uh, in yeah. its original bony version yeah. uh, but the last verse is rarely mm -hmm. read Yes, yeah, curious. people always cut that psalm off before yeah, the end yeah. because it's horrible. <coughs> that's and for the benefit of anyone listening who doesn't know how <laughs> Psalm 137 ends, do you want to? Well, it's the anger that these people were in exile and they were taken by the Babylonians and stripped away from everything they loved and owned and they were mocked, told to sing their songs that they sang in the temple. for, mm -hmm. And they got all mad and at the end of it says, well, we wish that your babies would be killed against the rocks. Yes, yeah. And, uh, May the Lord light a blessing upon the reading of his word. It doesn't work so well coming <laughs> No, not at all, no. And you know what I like with some of the reading I'm doing, and I feel better, and not better, but I like, I, is that, okay, God, if God is real, then he's going to have to be, be able to handle the darkness of life. Yes. The darkness yeah. of humanity. Mm -hmm. Now, how, does, that, does that reflect in who God is, or does that, uh, that particular verse? And so we negotiate yeah. back and forth. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the things that happened with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important for me is to was to, you know, coming from a tradition that read the Bible fairly literally, um, but also imposed on it this this sort of gloss that whatever you're reading is the word of the Lord that, you know, to realize that maybe whoever wrote that in Psalm 137 was speaking out of their own pain and anger. And it wasn't God saying, let's dash these Babylonians babies against the rocks. But it was it was you know, Israelites in exile saying that out of their own anger and pain. But I think that's still a very difficult reading for a lot of people. You know? Well, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, again, as people with post-modernity, post-Christian, what all these things, you post everything. <laughs> um, a lot of folk rediscovering sp their spirituality. Mm -hmm. And whether some people uh, decide to do that singularly or in nature, or through other aspects, those who will do it in the larger orb of Christianity will need to engage those things. Yes, yeah. And they'll come up to them. When someone says, from our world, and says, well, I'm sorry, that's just because it's God's word and that's what it is. Mm. I don't know if it ever worked, but maybe people just didn't feel like they had the agency of arguing sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now it'll never work. No. And, and, and I think if there's anything real or true about the word, about the Bible, then it wasn't supposed to or It was supposed to provoke. Yeah. It was supposed to make you love, get angry. You know, yeah. the, the image of God in us was supposed to be about, you know, those, those responses of humanity. Yeah. And uh, otherwise, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for it to be there. Right? Yeah. I think it's in, that's an interesting point about people maybe once then they didn't have the agency to question that, which kind of reminds me of what you were saying about millennials like I teach the youth class at my church which my daughter is in she's 17 and a couple of other it's a small church so it's a small group four to six teenagers depending on who's there that week and even though most of them you know grew up in a relatively conservative Christian home their response to some of these texts is just so unvarnished like Elijah and the bears and you know calling down the bears to maul the 42 young men 42 boys 
Uh, they were gobsmacked to discover that somehow we had missed this in all their children's Bible stories. And they're going, this is really in the Bible? Why is this in there? This is ridiculous. And their, you know, their responses are just so raw and so, so honest because I think they are of a generation that has been raised to just call stuff out and say, I don't care if this is in the Bible. If it sounds horrible to me, I'm going to say it's horrible. Yeah. And I think one uh, area where you see that really clearly is around discussions around sexuality. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, and I know I have a 17 year old and a 20 year old as well. Mm -hmm. And like to like the fact that the church or other religious groups are even having a conversation around this, whether it's a legitimate thing, they just cannot get their no heads around like no, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but we, we do like Dave's, we do have to struggle with the text mm -hmm. yeah because yeah. there are parts of scripture that do say you know certain things yeah things that we're not comfortable with right? and I think we cannot um, use the Bible as a as a clobber yeah uh, and I don't and I, I get uncomfortable too with trying to explain away mm -hmm. difficult mm -hmm. passages but we do have to wrestle with them. Yes, yeah. And maybe try to read read them in a different in a different light. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great book. I can't remember the name of the author. It's on my <laughs> shelf. <laughs> it's called Unprotected Texts. Oh, great title. Yeah, great title. And we'll look up who the author is, and it'll be in the yeah, in the blog post. It's it's more uh, Old Testament focused, but it mm -hmm. does look at passages around gender and sexuality mm -hmm. and how we look to the Old Testament a lot of times as like the family values yeah. uh, part of the Bible and it's not really and there's mm -hmm. no really one voice that the author yeah. says there's really no one voice mm -hmm. coming from the Old Testament around things like marriage sexuality gender yeah it's 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 a little bit more complicated than we mm -hmm. tend to think because often shocker we read our culture back yes. into yeah. the text I, th I think, too, on, on the whole thing of wrestling with the text, although I can't think of a specific writer right now, but I find Jewish writers in general are very helpful because that's so much a part of the Jewish tradition is, you know, right back to Abraham bargaining with God about Sodom, the idea that the whole, the relationship with God is almost a wrestling match, that mm -hmm. it's a struggle to find meaning, and, and uh, I think from what I've read anyway, a lot of Jewish writers and theologians are a lot more comfortable with that than Christians often are. Well, the proto-character in Judaism is Jacob. Yes, who is, who wrestles, you know, wrestles with, with God, the angel, wrestles with God, yeah. He, his name, Israel, uh -huh. reflects that. Yeah. Who yeah. struggles with God and with men. Yeah. So that identity is like right in the DNA uh, of, yeah, exactly. of Judaism, this idea of struggling, which Christians could really benefit from. Because it's our heritage as well. It is, yes, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the issues of uh, sexuality and gender, I mean, like, we don't have to go back for like we're, we're a second generation up now. Mm -hmm. These things always existed. Mm -hmm. uh, they are layered within, you know, whoever was writing history or sociology. 1970s homosexuality was in Alberta was listed in their medical guide as a as a, a, a disorder, psychiatric yeah, disorder. So, you know, it's a, so when we speak to folk and we deal with ourselves and like mm -hmm. wrestle with them, I guess we wouldn't. <sighs> The only thing worse than emancipating somebody from something that may be morally wrong would be enslaving somebody for something that isn't. Hmm. Right? And so that tension, 
mm-hmm. is, is is not hypothetical for a lot of folk. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, there are the people whose hearts are being broken over uh, that line of mm-hmm. what, what they understood to be true and what they they're looking at someone, sometimes even their own family. Mm-hmm. And these thresholds have often, you know been faced anytime there's morality let alone when that sexual morality gets in there yeah um, I'm, I'm a CBC person mm-hmm. as a lot of people are uh, and uh, on cue they interviewed uh, Mary Collins and Donald Collins okay and this is uh, their kind of autobiography of the broken place of mother and a trans son pick up the pieces oh wow I haven't heard of that one yeah. it looks great and where like, uh, I know more about it I suppose than a lot of folk in my constellation of you know Individuals, mm-hmm. I get a lot of people that I that are friends of mine uh, that are working through their gender issue, you know, gender scenarios. I don't like the nouns don't work. Okay, issues, yeah. gender, right? Okay, but uh, this uh, this was very interesting because it was taught, it was written from the point of view of, of a mother dealing with the fact that their child was moving through this, mm-hmm. and uh, so I don't when I want to learn something. Uh, that's counter to maybe my tradition. Mm-hmm. I rarely go to a Christian author. Okay. I usually go to folk that are in, in, involved with it, either personally or looking upon it. Yeah. Not to say that no one else has their lenses or prisms, mm-hmm. but uh, inevitably we all read through. I already know what my tradition is. Yes. I want to hear what someone in the middle of it does. And so yeah. I can't recommend the book yet because I just <laughs> bought it. Uh-huh. But it will be read soon. Yeah. By me. And that is such an important point. Uh, you know, what you say about people's hearts are being broken over this, that so many of these issues and questions are not just theoretical or theological. And, and I think that's such a good principle of going to people's lived experience and learning about it that way. We are just about out of time. Is there anything else, any other book that anybody wanted to get to or talk about? Just picking up on what Dave was saying, yeah. I would recommend Matthew Vines. Uh, God and the Gay God Christian. God and the Gay Christian, yes. I haven't uh, read it yet, but I've read it. It is from the evangelical tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Matthew Vines is, is a gay man, and mm-hmm. he's writing this somewhat autobiographical, but he, it's, uh, it's, and I've recommended it to a number yeah. of people who I know are struggling with their faith and their sexuality, yeah. where those two intersect. Mm-hmm. There's um, the book for me that when I was really thinking through a lot of these issues around gender and sexuality and faith, a uh, much earlier book, um, Stranger at the Gates, Gay and Christian in America by, um, I want to say Mel White, but I'm going to have to look that up to make sure because I'm trying to remember his name, but someone who had been like, I think he worked with Jerry Falwell, like he'd been very involved in the evangelical movement in the U.S. and was closeted the whole time and, and trying to deal with with, uh, with the sin of his sexuality. Very, very, yeah, that, that whole thing of, of listening to people who have walked through these experiences is so powerful. I think um, we're going to wrap up now, largely because I hear the, the people starting to hammer on my siding again, and I think that's going to come through on the recording. But I want to say thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Really appreciated it. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Reverend Rob Cook and David Newman. That wraps up Shelf Esteem for another week. And if you're interested in any of the books that Rob, David, and I discussed on this podcast, Once again, you can go to my website, trudymorgancole.com, and click the Shelf Esteem link to see all the books we talked about in this episode listed there. I'll be back again in a couple more weeks with a couple more guests. Until then, read a good book and build your shelf esteem.